This is episode 91 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Dr. Karen Wheeler-Hegland. Karen Hegland is an associate professor in the Department of Speech, Language, and Hearing Sciences at the University of Florida, where she directs the Laboratory for the Study of Upper Airway Dysfunction. Her research focuses on identifying the causes of airway protective disorders in people with neurodegenerative diseases, such as Parkinson's disease. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Hello, Karen. Hi, how are you? I'm wonderful. How are you? Doing well, thanks. Thank you so much for joining us. I am glad to. Thanks for the invitation. Yes, of course. All right. So tell the people who you are. So I'm Karen Wheeler-Hegland. I'm an associate professor at the University of Florida. I am the director of the Laboratory for the Study of Upper Airway Dysfunction, and we primarily look at different behaviors that help to protect the airway. So most people are familiar with swallowing as one of those primary behaviors, but we're also really interested in other behaviors like voluntary and reflexive coughing, the sensory aspects of those behaviors. So, you know, what makes someone cough, how much of it is necessary to induce a cough. And then we dabble a little bit in some of the in-between behaviors like the laryngeal adductor reflex and the expiratory efforts. And so that's a little bit about what I do. Patient populations, primarily neurodegenerative disease like Parkinson's or your atypical forms of Parkinson's disease. I have a PhD student who's more interested in head and neck, which is a little bit of a frontier for me, but you know, she's, she's kind of spearheading that effort. Cool. Yeah. Are you, are you good buddies with Michelle Trochet? Yes, very much okay. so. I was yes. like, you guys, yay, this is, this sounds just like her stuff too. So yeah, awesome. Yeah. So she, as you may know, was at the University of Florida for many years. And so when I joined faculty in 2012, she was still there. And so we actually co-founded the Upper Airway Dysfunction or UAD Laboratory. Awesome. So when she left for Columbia University Teachers College, I think that was late 2014, early 2015, she basically reestablished the lab there. And so now we say there's a UAD at Teachers College and a UAD at UF. Cool. Awesome. Okay. So what are we going to talk about today, Karen? Well, we can talk about cough. That's one of my favorite subjects. Awesome. Yeah. So I spend a lot of my time studying cough and actually it's not just cough, it's sensation because the sensory system is incredibly interesting, but it's really hard to study. So if you want to study something motor, it's easy because you can see it. You can measure things like electromyography or muscle activation. You can measure movement. You can measure velocity of movement. And so that's all motor. But sensory is kind of tricky because there's nothing visual that you can measure. If you measure something like a reflexive response, you're kind of still just measuring motor, assuming there was a sufficient sensory stimulus, but the response is motor. 
And so what we're really kind of trying to do is to figure out ways to measure sensation in the airway. Several years ago, when I was a postdoc, I started learning how to use electroencephalography or EEG to measure sensory evoked potentials. So that's the brain's response to a sensory stimulus. And it requires that you have an intact peripheral sensory system and then that you have intact relays between the brainstem, the thalamus, and the sensory cortex. And so you can measure different peaks in the sensory evoked potential. And they're representative of different steps in sensory processing. So the first peak would just be arrival of the stimulus in the sensory cortex. And then you might have the second peak, which assigns some sort of discriminative processing. So like how big was the stimulus? And then you go to the next step, which is more like, is it good or bad? And then you have sort of these emotional processing peaks that happen a little bit later. And these are all in milliseconds. So this is not a long period of time, but that assigns some meaning to it or or might go into a decision-making process with what you do with that sensory information. But it's one of the best ways that we have, at least in humans, to measure sensation that isn't dependent on our intact motor function. So in diseases like Parkinson's disease that we know have motor problems, it's, it makes it a, it's, it's a nice way to sort of be able to tease apart a little bit of the sensory system without being reliant on them having normal motor output. Yeah. So, so yeah, when, when Michelle Troche and I were, were still both here at Florida, we sort of happened upon this thing called the urge to cough. And it's funny because when we first started studying cough in Parkinson's disease in particular, we didn't really think too much about the sensory system. We were really just focused on the motor. We thought, okay, well, if there's cough impairment in Parkinson's disease, it's going to come in the form of reduced coordination of movement, perhaps reduced strength. And we're going to see sort of disorganized airflows and reduced effectiveness of those airflows. And to some degree you do, that's not untrue, but we also looked at this perceptual measure of urge to cough. And so when you present a cough stimulus, you can simply ask somebody, how much do you need to cough? And it turns out that people with Parkinson's disease don't perceive an urge to cough at the same magnitude as somebody without Parkinson's disease. And so we weren't really expecting that because typically people consider Parkinson's to be more of a, a motor issue, or at the very least, a sensory motor integration issue, but not necessarily a sensory issue in its own right. But what we found was kind of compelling that, yes, in fact, there was this blended perceptual identification of an urge to cough. And so that kind of, it well, it was unexpected, which I think some of the best research is. It's always cool. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes I actually get excited when my hypotheses don't work out because then yeah, it gives yeah. you something else to figure out. Yeah. I think that's what makes the life of a researcher exciting is when it's like, crap, it, we didn't really expect is. that. <laughs> I know. What if all of our hypotheses were correct? Like right. all the world's problems would be solved right. by now. Right. <laughs> so, so yeah, now, you know, obviously she and I aren't at the same institution. So we've, you know, have some individual projects that we've been looking at since then, but I've, kind of begin to look at this reduced perceptual identification of a need to cough as more of a blunted, a blunting in general respiratory sensation. So, you know, all of the structures that are important for swallowing or important for cough or important for speech or important for breathing. And so 
they're just different functions. And so currently our, our research has been looking at more general metrics of respiratory sensation. So you can load breathing and ask people just to identify how hard it is to breathe. And when we do that and people with Parkinson's, we see this very similar phenomenon of their, their perceptual identification of how loaded their breathing is, is also blunted, similar to how their urge to cough is blunted. And so that was kind of more evidence, okay, that maybe it's not just specific to coughing, that it's more like the respiratory, like the sensations that are respiratory related in general are just sort of not perceived as they would be in other people. Now, is this peripheral or central? I have no idea. Um, we're kind of trying to figure that out. But I can tell you that there is a perceptual deficit. So, and that's a little different, right? It's not saying yeah. that like the sensory nerves are bad or the receptors are bad. That's just saying that once that hits the brain, there's a perceptual deficit. And so now we're kind of trying to figure out where in the pathway that occurs, because it could be at the receptor level. It could be at the primary afferent level. It could be in the thalamus. It could be in the sensory cortex. It could be in association areas. And so now we have a, a study trying to look at at least piecing apart a, a bit of the pathway to see if we can start to identify where that might happen. Cool. And this is all in humans. And, you know, so that's tricky in and of itself. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's only, only so many invasive procedures humans are okay with you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can you go a little bit into how you're assessing that? So we're doing our urge to cough assessment, how we've done it in the past. So you, we use the stimulus capsaicin that's diluted to different levels. And we just have them rate the urge to cough. We're doing a respiratory loading paradigm. And basically what that looks like is we have a manifold with different resistors in it. Each one has a different level of resistance. We go from two and a half centimeters of water all the way up to 40. And so what that means is that when I apply that resistance, when you're inhaling, it's going to make it hard to inhale. And so, and then you can rate after that, basically how hard was it to breathe in? So very similar to the perceptual metric we do at the urge to cough. And then we're also doing respiratory related evoke potentials, REP. And so what that is, is that you have an EEG cap on your head with recording electrodes and we have them breathing through a circuit. Uh, it's non-rebreathing -re valve that is in line with basically a, an occluder. And so when I trigger the occluder, it occludes one breath. And that's the stimulus that time locks the EEG. So basically when we're recording the brain's signals, it's time locked to the occlusion. And then I can measure what happens in like a 400 millisecond period after the occlusion. And those are indicative of, of the peaks I spoke about before of the initial arrival of that sensation at the cortex, the discriminative and affective processing of that. And basically with all of this data, we'll be able to look and see if the brain response is correlated with those perceptual responses. And then also whether any of those responses are different between our Parkinson's patients and age equivalent healthy controls. And so it's a step in teasing it apart, basically just to see is the response at the cortical level different. If it is, then, okay, so we know that that's different. It doesn't really tell us if there are peripheral differences or differences in the, you know, primary, secondary, tertiary afferents. But, you know, if there aren't differences, then it would indicate that the, the, the change is, is further down the pathway. So it's a first step in looking yeah. at that. 
but, you know, I think at the end of it, whether we find differences or not, it's going to be good information kind of in directing what the next set of hypotheses will be and figuring out how to test them. Awesome. Yeah. Are you just looking at Parkinson's, Karen? Is that kind of your... Yeah. So for yeah. right now, the big... So that's that's the... That particular project is NIH funded and it's gotcha. just to look at Parkinson's for now. But in our, our clinic, we're... So we're part of a Parkinson's Center of Excellence, but we're also generally a movement disorders clinic. Okay. And so we see all kinds of atypical forms of Parkinson's, which are, you know, they're relatively rare diseases, but because we're the center, we tend to see more of them than you would just sort of in a general neurology clinic. So I've had students start to look at these same sorts of things in multiple systems atrophy, progressive supranuclear palsy as kind of the two primary ones. And then also things like corticobasal degeneration or Lewy body dementia as kind of secondaries. But those tend to have an earlier onset coexisting dementia or cognitive changes that make them a bit trickier to study, whereas MSA and PSP don't necessarily, even though we know that cognition becomes impaired in all of these, but it just sort of makes it an easier cell, I guess, to compare to Parkinson's gotcha. disease. Yeah. MSA in particular, because they're both alpha synucleinopathies, just being the protein that's implicated in the disease process, whereas PSP is a tauopathy. So that makes it even a little bit more different. But you know, the thing is, is that presenting symptoms make it really hard to tease these diseases apart until they're a little bit further along. And so, you know, down the road, what we'd really like to do is to study these patients longitudinally and see if there's anything in either their speech cough or swallowing profiles that would help to differentiate them from PD earlier on that could assist neurologists in their diagnosis. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because, uh, you know, there are just a lot of times and it's not it's not for any other reason that they just look really similar at the onset that people that go on to develop an MSA or PSP diagnosis start off with a PD diagnosis. Gotcha. Okay. So, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, cool, Karen. I feel like I learned so much already. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's see. Where are we going next? So one of the other things that we're looking at, and I actually don't think I included any of this literature in kind of my, the, the things that I provided at first was that along the similar lines of looking at helping to differentiate those diagnosis is their motor speech profiles. And so, you know, I've been more of a airway researcher in terms of defense for a while, but you know, it turns out that speech also uses those same muscles and stuff. And so part of my clinical responsibilities, obviously, is to assess motor speech function. And so we're also kind of looking at some of our metrics of motor speech and both perceptual and quantitative to identify whether there could also be some speech-related parameters that help to differentiate these folks early on. Because, you know, with Parkinson's disease, you would expect a hypokinetic dysarthria of varying severities, but it's typically not going to have any other components to it. Like you're not going to hear a taxic or a spastic components. Whereas in MSA and PSP and MSA has a couple subtypes. So you could start to hear a taxic components. You could start to hear spastic components. Similarly in PSP, they tend to end up with mixed dysarthrias, but Myself and other clinicians that I work with or have worked with in the clinic, anecdotally, we all hear the changes or the differences rather 
earlier on. Like, oh, you know, wow. it's like a person with P, a PD diagnosis comes in and I hear something perceptually in my speech evaluation and I can be like, oh my gosh, that person is headed for an MSIP diagnosis. Oh, wow. And, but that's just all anecdotal up until now. Yeah. So now we're starting to look back retrospectively at our speech evaluations and some of these different metrics to see if there's any, you know, evidence to support maybe a prospective trial moving forward to, to look in, and really dive into whether any of these things can assist in an earlier accurate differential diagnosis. What kind of specific, I guess, tools or parameters are you using to make those? Yeah. So one of them is purely perceptual. So we just have a set of tasks that we based, and it wasn't me, it was actually Jay Rosenbeck and Michelle Troche when they were here. So before I joined the, the faculty in the clinic, they were already doing these evaluations. This goes back like 2007, 2008, possibly even earlier for Jay. But basically they developed based on the recommendations in the Duffy book, which tends to kind of be the gold standard yeah. of motor speech in terms of the different tasks that they use. So they're look at tasks that isolate, you know, the respiratory system, laryngeal system, velopharyngeal system. They look at rate accuracy. So those kinds of things. And so they came up with a rating system, a zero to seven scale with zero being normal speech, seven being anarthric essentially. And we've been using the same tasks and same scale in our clinic for over a decade now. And so for a long, long time, probably up until 2014 or 15, possibly into 16, we were recording all of these. And so there are hundreds, perhaps thousands of data points that exist looking at this. So part of what we're doing now is going back retrospectively in a particular time span and pulling the numbers and pulling the, the audio from these tasks to basically look and see if, if our rating system based on these tasks has any predictive power in terms of what, and it's nice because a lot of these, the patients came back for two, three, four visits. So you can actually look at them sort of, you know, retrospectively, but longitudinally to see if, if there was any indication of where that change came in. Another tool that we're looking at also not developed by me, but by Andrew Lotto and Julie Liss looks at and I'm going to get the name wrong because I always do whenever I talk about <laughs> it because it's so acoustic sciencey and that's just yeah. not me. But it's an envelope modulation spectrum, I think, EMS. I may have gotten that wrong. Okay. If I do, I'll let you know. <laughs> that's and okay. Then we can... No problem. <laughs> <laughs> but it looks at it. And again, I'm probably going to explain this wrong as well. So it's a MATLAB routine that can take an utterance and look at where the power is in certain aspects of the spectrum of the speech spectrum. And so you can take sentences or even just connected speech. So the beauty of this, as Andrew has explained it to me, is that you don't have to have, you know, this highly controlled sound booth, high quality microphone kind of speech sample, like a lot of acoustics depend on. You can take, you know, your audio recording from your clinic room of them talking and run it through this, this spectrum and it still is a robust measure. And so as part of the motor speech evaluation or uh, protocol that we've been using, we have four standard sentences that everybody always says. So what I've done is I've had a graduate student go back through and extract these sentences. Yay, grad students. Yeah, I know, right? (laughs) Because it's 
so tedious. <laughs> That's all I did for, I had a child language professor and I just yep. did language transcription for hours and hours and hours yeah. and hours. Yeah. Yeah. That's how we all pay our dues. You know, yes. it's like that you yeah. can't get a degree. I don't yeah. think without having some tedium and yeah. what you've, yeah. you've done. Yeah. And now I'm like, Oh, that was such a cool experience. But at the time it was like, God, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, agree. I had, I had a very similar experience of measuring the glottal aperture <laughs> using image change. It's like dotting yeah. these little points for hours on end. That's probably why my eyesight got so bad. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so we, we were able to do a preliminary pass running these, these four sentences through the MATLAB program. And I believe we just started off with like a PD group, no deep brain stimulation, cause that throws its own little monkey rich into speech, but PD versus PSP. And then I think unspecified Parkinsonism, and they actually found somewhere on the order of 90% ability to predict who fell into which group based on this quantitative acoustic measure of these sentences. And so that's the other way. So we're looking at the perceptual results and then also that quantitative measure. Again, to just look and see if, if we can identify what, what would be kind of the holy grail of this, if, if I can take people with PD or with unspecified Parkinsonism who went on to develop something else and have identified them at a time point before they receive that diagnosis, because yeah. that would, that would be a really, really cool thing to add into the differential that, that neurologists are using now. Yeah. So, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, that's some really meaningful work, Karen. <laughs> I, I like to think so, you know? Yeah. 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 It's, it, I, I know all research is meaningful, but sometimes it's like, we're looking at these little little measurements and little measurements. And, but this is just cool. If you could, you know, help neurologists make differential diagnoses quicker. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I'm, I feel really fortunate because, you know, I have access to a great team of people yeah. and uh, patient populations that are, you know, it just fascinates me how altruistic some people can be with just wanting to help even if it doesn't help them right away, yeah, yeah. you know, willingness to participate in an observational research study. Yeah. Well, you know, and it's just like, well, if I have the opportunity to help someone further down the road, I mean, it's just an amazing group of patients. So yeah. definitely yeah. thankful for that. Yeah. That's really cool. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, I guess, talk about the clinical relevancy of what you're doing. So you said okay. there's a few ways that, you know, clinicians can begin using assessing cough oh, yeah. function. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. So the, <laughs> the thing with cough obviously is that we are all kind of using it in some way, right? Like if you're a clinician that works in an acute care center, when you go into your bedside, you probably have the person cough and then you make some assessment of whether it's you know present or absent or weak or strong or, or whatever other descriptors you might use. And so a few years back, one of my former PhD students, Helena Lechuga, did a study where we recorded all different coughs. So we would have different people come in and cough and make it sound strong, make it sound breathy. And so we just manipulated all the cough airflows and we chose 10 that really sort of captured what we were going for acoustically and aerodynamically. And we enrolled clinicians, mainly speech pathologists, but some otolaryngologists that assess cough. And we had them rate the cough, present, absent 
multiple single, strong, weak, effective. And we had a few different descriptors or they could write in their own descriptors. And what was really interesting, all that surprising, but interesting is that clinicians were incredibly unreliable between each other at rating the coughs, even if something as simple as like, was this a cough or not? was, was unreliable. And, and that's okay because the reality is, is that when we're trained, especially as speech pathologists, probably as otolaryngologists as well, nobody teaches you how to assess cough, right? It's just like, Oh, have them cough. Was it, you know, strong or weak? So what we're trying to do is really encourage clinicians to use some quantitative metric. So the very easiest and probably least expensive thing is just an analog peak flow meter. They are or, or a digital one, they're a little bit more expensive, but either way, a, a peak flow meter, and this is just peak expiratory flow, and you just sort of use it for cough instead of regular old airflow. And there is normative data out there that can tell you whether somebody's cough is truly normal, strong, or weak, you know, less than what you would expect. And to use those as, you know, a guide or in terms of whether or not you tell, you know, somebody that their, their cough is adequate or inadequate, or, you know, whether you use it as, you know, evidence to go forth with, you know, initiating PO trials or keeping somebody NPO. And so that's, that's one thing that I would say, you know, you have it available clinically right now. It's just, you know, see if you can get some buy-in from your department to order peak flow meters, the digital ones, you can actually order antibacterial filters to put on the mouthpiece. And then you can use that across patients as long as you have it filtered and then you just clean out the mouthpiece after afterwards. So that's one relatively easy thing. I think people can be doing right now. The other thing that we're, we're trying to do is one of my, one of my current PhD students is interested in developing a cough training program. And so we're trying to figure out, okay, so what will that look like? So how do we provide probably an online platform to help train clinicians how to assess cough? And so that means everything from what is a cough, what are cough airflows, what should they be, perceptually, what does this sound like? What are the necessary components of a cough that make it effective? Because for example, we know that even people without a larynx, right, or laryngectomies, they can cough. It might not sound like a cough, but they can achieve some pretty high airflows that are probably effective in clearing some stuff out of their airway. You know, so we're trying to really look at it past a wide net and look at all these different possible permutations of what makes a uh, cough effective and provide a training platform for how you assess it more accurately. Cool. Has there been any work done with laryngectomies with measuring that? Um, yes. So there have been a couple of studies out of Europe looking at the basically EMGs of inspiratory and expiratory muscles, looking at using those as a metric for strength in laryngectomy. And they actually if I'm recalling this correctly, didn't find too much of a difference. And so what that meant was that their expiratory and inspiratory muscles were able to achieve adequate contraction for cough airflow. But I don't believe in that particular study that they actually measured airflow. We looked at more recently, I think we have a total of 37 laryngectomies run through our protocol. Oh, wow looking at cough airflow and it is kind of, it, you know, it looks different because their system is different. So, you know, necessarily they lack a compression phase because compression phase is dependent on laryngeal closure. 
And so when you don't have a larynx, you don't have a compression phase, but they are able to achieve good excitatory airflows. I don't think that they fell into what we would consider a normal range, but they were there. Their cough sensitivity also tended to be intact. So we actually used capsaicin to induce cough in these patients and they had good sensitivity. I don't know if it was exactly where the healthy controls were, but they were sensitive to the stimulus. So removal of the larynx did not take away removal of airway sensitivity to the irritant, which is good because so fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. we want them to remain sensitive to these things because they're, right. you know, a particularly vulnerable population to airway infection. So yeah, I mean, I they don't, you know, and it's funny because in the in the cough community, and and a lot of the cough community is engaged in research looking at chronic refractory cough. So like exactly the opposite of what we're interested in, right? I'm interested in why my patients don't cough a lot. And most of these people are interested in why people are coughing too much. Yeah. But there's a, you know, there are very, a lot of them are very sort of entrenched in what actually is a cough and what isn't a cough and what mechanics make that. So, and so my uh, impression is that if I showed some of the, the hardcore cough researcher, uh, airflow waveform of my laryngectomies, they might argue that it's not a cough because it lacks this compression phase, which is part of a cough. But I would actually say that for somebody who doesn't have a larynx, it's definitely a cough and it's probably a pretty effective cough given their anatomic difference. So, you know, I think that, that part of starting to look at cough in these different patient populations is perhaps even challenging what people consider to be a cough. I mean, I think if you have a stimulus that induces this, you know, sort of pseudo reflexive, uh, expiratory effort, then, you know, the intention is to cough regardless of whether you have the anatomy to support that. So I'm sure there are people that would, would disagree with that, but I think they cough. Yeah. How, how do you guys determine, I guess, functionally the effectiveness of the cough? Yeah. So we use the aerodynamics of it. So when we're measuring cough, you can measure it either with a mouthpiece and nose clips or just a face mask that covers the nose and mouth. And you basically just couple that to a spirometry system. And so you can measure airflow. So very similar to how you would measure airflow if you were just doing pulmonary function testing and a cough. So there are different phases of cough, kind of like there's different phases of swallowing. And so you have an inspiratory phase you have the compression phase, and then you have your expiratory phase. And so the compression phase is basically when larynx superglottal structures are tightly closed and there's a buildup of tracheal pressure. And that buildup of pressure is going to allow for a very ballistic sort of release of expiratory airflow that's going to result in a very quick peak. And then what we call plateau phase, which is sustained airflow that follows the peak. And so the effectiveness is based on a few things. The compression phase needs to be a duration that actually can't be too short or too long. If it's too short, you don't have enough time to build up the pressure. If it's too long, too long seems to be associated with just general incoordination. And so you might not get a coordinated opening of the glottis to allow for that quick expiratory airflow rate. So you need it to have a duration that is. I'm trying to remember what we found. I think it's not more than half a second, but not less than like 0.1 seconds or something in that range seems to be the sweet spot for, you know, what you want for compression phase duration. The 
peak expiratory airflow, which is kind of that initial ballistic release of air, where you want it to be actually depends a little bit on what type of cough. So if you're doing a single maximal voluntary cough, it should be getting up around six liters per second or higher, depending on how big and strong someone is essentially. If you're measuring a reflex cough, it's not quite as high. And that kind of makes sense because if you're doing a, so the, the peak is going to depend a little bit on how much air you start with. And if you do a reflex cough, then you're going to actually stop inspiring more quickly than if you just do a maximal voluntary cough, right? So the, the reflex cough peak flows are a little bit less, but I would say still, you know, you want it to be three to four liters per second. And then the sustained flow phase, it's more just sort of about how it looks organizationally. So you want it to have kind of a inhale compression peak, and then kind of this nice organized look to it. So that's, that's how we measure it. So we have some, some that are quantitative because we can look actually at peak airflows and durations. And then some that's just sort of a qualitative, I look at it and I say, this is organized or this is disorganized. Gotcha. So, so yeah, if, you know, going back to the, the, how you would apply that clinically, the peak flow meters. So the, the one thing that they're going to measure in that whole waveform is the peak expiratory airflow rate. And that's okay. It's, you don't have to have everything because there's better normative data on the peak expiratory airflow date rate than there is on those other metrics. Okay. So the, the, you know, the, the entire cough waveform, the cough spirometry is probably at this point, something that is more accessible only to researchers, because, you know, if you're in the clinic, you probably don't have a spirometry system that you can routinely measure cough on, which is why I said those peak airflow meters are really nice for that because they're inexpensive, easy to use. And you, like I said, you don't need a lot of equipment. It's just a handheld thing. And you can still get that peak expiratory flow rate, which is still good information. But yeah, when we measure it in the laboratory, we're looking at, at several different things in terms of determining whether it's effective or, and it's tricky to say whether it's effective because ultimately the measure of cough effectiveness is whether or not something was ejected. Yeah. And we can't measure that. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. So that's what leads me, you know, do then, do you look at this stuff under fees or video fluoroscopy to see, you know, was the cough effective in injecting material? Yeah. Yeah. So we haven't yet. I mean, we do certainly clinically we do, right? So yeah. if I see somebody aspirate on fluoro, then regardless of whether it's an uncued or a cued cough, I will try to make an assessment of whether or not they were able to eject the material. We have not yet coupled that with spirometry. Gotcha. So I cannot tell you right now if those airflows are necessary to actually eject something that was aspirated, but I think that's an excellent question and definitely where we need to go with this is to yeah. see if, you know, what we think is effective. Really what I should say is that we can tell if it's not what a healthy person of the same age group would do, yeah. right? Assuming that that cough is effective in the right. healthy person. Right. That's what we can right. I think say. there's so many just crazy factors here because it's like yeah. even healthy normals silently aspirate sometimes. It's like absolutely you throw this in and then it's just or mind blown. Right. So right. And then it's the size <laughs> of the aspiration too, right? Like I was drinking yeah. my coffee this morning and like I got a little bit down the wrong pipe and I knew I needed to clear my throat, but I, you know, it wasn't like I spit out the whole sip <laughs> because I couldn't control it because it was just a little bit. So like, yeah. what is the threshold from work for where you should respond? Right. Right. How much aspiration do you need before you need to have a response? 
I don't know. I don't know if the IRB would let me do that study. Yeah, right? yeah, like, right, right, hey. right. We're like, get to work, Karen. And you're like, yeah, that probably wouldn't be approved. I'm going to inject some stuff into some yeah. people's airways and see how much it takes to get them to cough. Yeah. <laughs> so, Sounds yeah, good. Yeah. Questions and they're just, they're hard to answer. Yeah, yeah. So I just, you know, we need to get creative and figure out ways to answer it. But I think that's, you know, a, a really good, just like, well, you were at DRS this year. Do you remember the um, presentation? It was a, a big study. I think it was out of the UK and they had basically looked at lots and lots, like I think on the orders of thousands of patients who had different neurologic diagnoses, but were at some point known aspirators. And they looked at who developed aspiration pneumonia and, and who didn't. And if memory serves, whether or not they were aspirators wasn't the thing that determined who developed pneumonia. Right, right. So right. There's so many other factors that go into it, whether or not they, they, they aspirate. And certainly, you know, if, if you have more severe and people are blatantly aspirating the majority of the bolus, that's a different story. But in our neurologic, our neurodegenerative populations, it's, that's typically not the case. It's typically small amounts, perhaps consistently, but definitely small amounts. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I think that question of like, when is enough right. or when is too much is a, a really important one. Yeah. It's important. I just don't know that we'll ever get there just because there's so many dang other factors to I know contribute. It. So, yeah. Well, even just like, Hey, are you amb ambulatory or not? Right. Like, are you right. active or not? Or do you have good oral hygiene or not? Like all of those other factors that, you know, some of them we can control for and some of them we can't, but it's right. certainly not just whether or not someone aspirates. Right. Right. I think that's when I get so frustrated when people just want to know, you know, did they aspirate? Did they not? Are they going to get pneumonia? Or are they not? And it's like, no, there's a lot that goes into this. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, it's funny because some of our, you know, obviously we're a training institution. So we have a lot of fellows that, that come through our clinic. And last week, some of the fellows who are finishing up had asked for the different rehab specialties to kind of come in and just tell them what you know, what you need to look out for, et cetera. And so I think, you know, one of the things that I said was the first thing I really need you to know is that there's no such thing as passing or failing a swallow test. Yay. It doesn't work <laughs> that way. And I said, I know all the training you've gotten has, you know, drilled it into your head that someone can pass or fail, but that is simply not the case. And did they all look at you like you had 27 heads? Yeah, essentially, maybe 30 <laughs> heads. I don't know. But it was a good conversation because I think, you know, they know the nuances of their own profession, but they don't know the nuances right. of somebody else's. And, you know, so we talked and, you know, I said, I can tell you that in a, in a person with a neurodegenerative disease that still has a pretty long life expectancy, there is no way in Hades that I'm going to put them on thick and liquids the rest of their lives. Like that's not, that's not fair to them. Yeah. I'm yeah. going to figure out some other way to help them swallow safely, unless they tell me they really want to be on thick and liquids, but I've never heard anybody say I that have, I was just going to say, I had my first guy yesterday that I did a fees and I was like, everything looks great. Everything looks great. You're good to go. And he's like, but I really feel better on that nectar thick stuff. I, I like it. And I was like, <laughs> okay. dude, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> I looked at the other SLP. I was like, why am I even here? She's like, I've never heard this before. I'm mind blown. Yeah. So I, yes, he's the one guy that I've ever encountered. Okay. Well, that's one between the two of us because yeah. I've never heard it before. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and there were some times, and I'm not saying it's never an appropriate recommendation, right, right, right. But, you know, especially when I have somebody who has a lot of other comorbidities, certainly it can be appropriate. But for my, my 
red tech always calls them the walkie talkies Yeah, for my walkie talkies who otherwise are doing pretty well. They just happen to consistently aspirate small amounts of thin. I'm not going to tell them to thicken their liquids for the rest of their life. Not unless things get worse and other things change. But for now we find other ways to manage it, whether it's, uh, manipulating the size of the sip, taking, you know, using a different type of cup, using a straw, not using a straw, you know, there are other things that we can figure out, you know, cough after every second swallow. If I see that they are an effective cougher, then I use cough as part of my recommendations. And I mean, that's to me, a common sense way of approaching management for somebody who is, you know, and I get it in acute care. It's different. If you have somebody with a stroke and you have sort of a critical period that you have to get over a bump. Sure. Absolutely. But in somebody with, with, who's an outpatient that happens to have a neurodegenerative disease. That's just not a, 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 I don't know, a reasonable recommendation in my opinion, unless like I said, there's other things going on. Yeah. Well, I think that's what makes our profession valuable. I think that's what makes a skilled clinician is being able to trial these different strategies to get the patient to consume the thin liquids. I mean, anyone can slap anybody on thick and liquids that doesn't take a rocket scientist to do so. You know, yeah, I think yeah. trialing all these different things and taking all these different measurements into effect is what makes us valuable. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the less tunnel visions we can be, the better. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot more than just what the swallow physiology looks like at your snapshot in time. It's yeah. Yeah. lots of other things considered. Yeah. So do you think your fellows, do you think you change their mind? I hope so. I think so. They're pretty smart people. So, yeah, yeah. you know, I think, I think they, they hopefully retained one or two of those little gems that I gave them. Good. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Oh, thanks, Karen. This has been so helpful. Yeah, it's been fun for sure. Apparently I can talk about my own stuff for a long time. Well, that's whatever. Everybody's like, I don't know what I'm going to talk about. I'm like, just start talking. I promise you'll keep going. Yeah. 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 That's kind of funny. Yeah. You just lose track and you can talk about what you know forever. So yeah. 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 Is there anything else you want to touch on? You know, I, I guess just in terms of like soapbox issues in general, let's go there. Our profession. (laughs) And I don't know if you've had, you probably had Dr. Ianessa Humbert on here before. So, oh no. Okay. So I I think she would agree because she and I have talked about this before especially in faculty meetings. And, you know, one thing that I think has to change in terms of training our clinicians is that, and she has statistics on this, so I don't know what they are, but if you want the stats, she has them. The majority of clinicians that work in medical settings are doing swallowing evaluations. And that's their, that's what they do day in and day out. But in graduate school, we get one class in dysphagia. And I think that that has to change. I think that not that we can't produce good clinicians, but our clinicians need more training. You know, now it's like, if you want to become a specialist in swallowing, it's incumbent on you to do that at the postgraduate level. But, you know, I don't know anyone who would say, oh, I had one dysphagia class in, in graduate school and now I can assess dysphagia and make good recommendations. I just like, nobody learns that way. Yeah. And so I think my soapbox issue is I think we just need more training in airway protection in general. I think it needs to, we need to expand the scope to include cough. I think we need more training on swallowing in, you know, geriatrics, pediatrics, what's normal, what's not normal. And, you know, I I would really love to see 
ASHA take that into consideration moving forward because yeah. we, I think, are underpreparing people to do arguably one of the most important things that SLPs do. I completely I agree. So yeah, I completely agree. Well, and I think one other thing that you said too is, you know, you're doing a lot of motor speech evaluations too. And I think yeah. one thing that we lose in grad school is how really intertwined all these mechanisms oh, really truly yes. are, you know, and yes. it's like, I know I had dysphagia class that was down this lane and motor speech class that was down this lane. And it wasn't until Absolutely. like 10 years into my career that I was like, holy crap, this stuff is all so intertwined. Everything yes. really does affect the other, you know, a lot of things have multiple jobs. And I just wish yeah. that there was more of kind of a collective effort to, you know, educate us on, on that stuff together. So. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I mean, I think kind of having more of a systems-based approach to learning these things makes a lot more sense than, you know, how we silo them all now. Like yeah, it, yeah. exactly. You said you have motor speech, you have dysphagia and, you know, actually one thing Dr. Humbert and I did at the end of this past. So I teach motor speech in the fall. She teaches dysphagia in the spring at the end of the fall semester, she and I got together and did kind of a joint class for the students going over patients who had both motor speech and swallowing problems. And it was not for any other reason, but just to start to get students to think about that these things oftentimes probably will coexist in the same patient. Awesome. And so you can't yeah. just yeah. take off one hat and put on the other and like assume that they're not related. And I think that's one piece of education that traditionally is my experience, you know, decade and a half ago was that they're really treated quite separately. And it doesn't yeah. like when you don't even see your professors talk about it together, you know, it makes it hard for you as a very young clinician to, to make those connections right. without some really good mentorship. Right. Right. Like I hate, so. like, I hate it. Like some days all I do is swallow studies and it's like, yeah. I hate that. I don't know more about motor speech or aphasia because they're all intertwined. This patient totally. has all these things going on. And I'm so down swallow lane that that's really all I focus on. And I hate it when, you know, I'll talk to other SLPs and, you know, they're like, well, we've got to assess this. We've got to assess that. We've got to assess this. And I'm like, yes, yeah. we all need to know more about that. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I mean, it, and it's true. And and sometimes you have to, to, to pick and choose what's going to be more important for the patient when you right. go to rehabilitate, right? 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 Because, you know, Medicare doesn't differentiate for which type of therapy you're doing. Right. right. It's, it's SLP therapy. So, you know, if, if you're like, okay, well, I have to do therapy for swallowing and then whoever assessed it, their speech, well, I have to do therapy for speech. Well, you know, you might have to, you know, choose at some point, right? Like right now we need to focus on speech. You know, we, we will circle back around to the swallowing, but right now, given the deficits and the patient's primary concerns, we have to focus on speech. And, you know, when you don't have that crosstalk or when you're not the one that's doing all of the evaluation, then, you know, you don't get to have that information when you're, when you're making up your treatment plan or your treatment priorities. Right. So yeah, I, I think it would, I think it would help us so much more as a profession too, because it's, you know, there's all this pressure from, you know, directors and things like that. You need to pick this patient up for this. And it's like, well, they don't have a swallowing problem. There's nothing I can do. When, right. you know, they have blatant aphasia or, you know, motor speech, <laughs> something going on. And it's like, if we only knew a little bit more about all these systems collectively, we probably could help a lot more people that aren't getting our services. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and I think, you know, some people are fortunate enough to work in environments where they are the person that is assessing all of those. And then some people, you know, are in more specialty clinics and they're not necessarily, but 
Yeah. You know, I think our ability to, to think across systems and yeah. to understand how they're interrelated is really important. And I mean, that's, I think, I mean, I don't know. It seems kind of like low hanging fruit. Like that right. shouldn't be something that's insurmountable to overcome. Right. Right. So, right. I completely yeah. agree. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that, Karen. I know a lot of people feel that way. <laughs> well, you're welcome. So, you're yeah. welcome. I, uh, I, I hope I don't get any, uh, <laughs> I don't know, hate mail from that. No, no. Event. I think but, hopefully the more that people keep talking about this, Asha might actually listen and do something about it. So yeah, let's hope anyways. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Karen. This has been so wonderful. Thank you. I've had fun. Can't wait to hear the finished product. Yeah, it'll be great. Cool. All right. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you. Uh, Take care. Uh, Enjoy the rest of your week. You as well. All right. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on SwallowYourPridePodcast.com, where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening.